Do Canada's military partnerships with the U.S. through NATO and other bodies compromise her military sovereignty? To what extent is Canada already engaged in the militarization of outer space? What is America's vision for 2020, and where do President Trump's newly announced space force and ballistic missile defense plans fit in? Will the U.S. have the capability to control who leaves the planet, and how might U.S. corporate interests benefit from such control? Could a new arms race in space constitute the biggest industrial program in the history of humanity? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we examine efforts under the Trump administration to pursue the militarization and weaponization of space during a week of action devoted to stopping such endeavors. We first hear from Toronto-based academic and peace campaigner Tamara Lawrence about how and why Canada is complicit in America's military agenda. Then we hear from Bruce Gagnon of the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space about how the Trump administration is already militarizing space and how a nuclear arms race could become a project comparable in relative terms to the Egyptian pyramids of ancient times. On this week's program, Star Wars Revisited, Trump's plans to make space the ultimate battleground. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of October 11th, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Gakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Dakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Another aspect to sanctions that is somewhat invisible is the impact that government action has had on what are regarded as the constitutional rights of American citizens. Max Blumenthal has written an interesting article on a recent application of sanctions that has affected a group of citizens who are seeking to attend a conference in Beirut, Lebanon. Blumenthal describes how the attempt to criminalize any participation in a conference sponsored by the Iranian NGO New Horizon as a, quote, significant escalation in the Trump administration's strategy of maximum pressure to bring about regime change in Iran, unquote. A number of Americans who had intended to speak or otherwise participate in the conference were approached in advance by FBI agents, evidently acting under orders from Sigal Mandelker, Treasury Undersecretary for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. The agents warned that any participants in the conference might be subject to arrest upon return to the U.S. because New Horizon is under sanctions. That comes from the article, Sanctioning Away Free Speech, Americans Meet with Iranians at Their Peril, by Philip Giraldi, posted October 10th, originally published at Strategic Culture Foundation. Iran is facing a lot of pressure along its southern flank from the U.S., Israel, and their GCC allies, hence why it must seek relief along the western and eastern axes through its two neighbors. Chinese and Russian diplomatic and economic support is both welcome and helpful 
though nothing can replace the importance of good neighborly cooperation with Pakistan and Turkey. After this week's events at the UN General Assembly, there's no question that Iran is at a strategic crossroads. It's being squeezed in both the Mashrig and the Gulf, yet at the same time, new strategic opportunities have emerged in Asia Minor, Turkey, and South Asia, Pakistan, proving the adage that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. It's now incumbent on Iran to decide whether it should continue pushing back with all its might along the fronts where it's being contained, or if it should seek to freeze the state of affairs there in order to concentrate its efforts on advancing regional integration with Pakistan and Turkey instead. That comes from the article, Iran and the UN General Assembly, Mediation Efforts, Militant Threats, and Multilateral Cooperation, by Andrew Koribko, posted October 10th, originally published on One World. Abandoning the occupation of northeast Syria would result in giving up a strategic location in the Middle East, a move that the U.S. administration is not expected to take this year. Moreover, the international support the Kurds in Syria and Iraq enjoy may well protect them from being attacked on all fronts by jihadists and pro-Turkish militants. However, the interest of the U.S. is to look after its NATO ally rather than prioritize Syrian Kurdish militants who fought and were paid money and military hardware in exchange for their services, as Trump has explained. This means a limited Turkish operation is expected and has indeed started, notwithstanding all the complications and conflicts of interest Turkey will be facing with its Russian and Iranian allies. The U.S. has always been very clear that its own interests prevail above those of any other country or group. That comes from the article, U.S. forces will not likely withdraw from Syria this year. The Kurds remain the biggest losers, by Elijah J. Magnier. Posted October 10th, originally posted on the author's blog. Fact. The U.S. came to Syria to stay. Pentagon forces and proxy jihadists operating from around 18 bases in the country's north near Turkey's border and south near Iraq and Jordan. Fact. Trump is redeploying U.S. forces in Turkey away from Turkey's border, not withdrawing them from the country as falsely reported. A White House statement said the U.S. will neither support or be involved in Turkey's planned cross-border offensive against Syrian Kurdish fighters, U.S. proxies against Damascus. What's coming is naked aggression by any standard, part of President Erdogan's aim to annex Syrian territory, especially its oil-producing areas. That comes from the article, U.S. Plans Permanent Occupation of Syrian Territory, by Stephen Lendeman, posted October 8th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. With the announcement last year of the creation of a U.S. Space Force to become a sixth branch of the U.S. military and ensure U.S. military dominance in space, as well as the decision earlier this year to embark on the expansion of a ballistic missile defense system designed to target enemy missiles, the Trump administration has taken its aggressive military posturing literally to new heights. Questions therefore arise for next-door neighbor and economic partner Canada as to whether it can meaningfully pursue a more peaceful foreign policy in line with the aspirations of its citizenry. To discuss the question of 
Canadian military sovereignty in the era of Trump and the extent to which Canada is already compromised by its current military alliances, the Global Research News Hour contacted a prominent Canadian peace campaigner active in the Toronto area. Tamara Lawrence is a PhD student in global governance at Balsili School for International Affairs at Wilfrid Laurier University. Tamara is currently on the board of the Canadian Voice of Women for Peace, uh, Canada's oldest national feminist peace group. She's also on the International Advisory Committee of Global Network Against Nuclear Power and Weapons in Space. We recorded the following interview on Wednesday, October 9th, immediately following a protest organized by the Canadian Voice of Women for Peace outside the NATO Association of Canada office in downtown Toronto. Welcome, Tamara. Thank you very much for having me. How did the event go this afternoon? It went well. So we protest once a month outside the NATO Association of Canada office, which is funded by Lockheed Martin and General Dynamics, the two big U.S. weapons giants. And this month we had a special theme to coordinate with the international campaign to keep space for peace. So we had a fantastic banner that said, keep space for peace, no to NATO. And we were in solidarity with the global network against weapons and nuclear power in space. There are actions taking place around the world this week to call for uh, space to be a peaceful global commons, and we were really happy to be uh, in solidarity with that campaign. And it was a beautiful sunny day in Toronto, so we had a great turnout, and we had lots of interest from the public walking by. Okay. And were there any, uh, what kind of a program did you have, pretty typical like speeches and uh, banners, that sort of thing? Yes, and we had the participation of the Raging Grannies, and they sang a couple of songs, and we had our banners, and and we had a petition that was out and some leaflets. So uh, the, the banners that we had included signs that said, you know, Canada out of NATO, uh, no to NATO, uh, no nuclear weapons, yes to peace and disarmament. And we also did some chalk drawing on the sidewalk. Uh, Canada out of NATO keeps space for peace. And it's a very high traffic area right in downtown Toronto. And lots of people are walking by. There's lots of people that see our sign. And we also had support from people walking by and from people driving by. So lots of honks. And um, and we, we think it's important to be on the street, have a, a very a visible presence to say that there are Canadians who are opposed to NATO. There are Canadians who are concerned about the direction of our defense policy and that there are Canadians that want to have uh, a spa- um, peace and space. We don't want to see a space to be a new domain of weapons and war. So we had a, a great demonstration today. Now, you mentioned that you've been demonstrating there for several months. So are you beginning to see impacts? I mean, you, beyond some of the people uh, like on the streets, uh, are you seeing any uh, effect on, on political decision makers or, or even people within the NATO uh, office? Well, so we started in January. This year is the 70th anniversary of NATO, and we've had a protest once a month, and we'll continue to have a protest in, until the end of this year. And we think it's very important to start building a national opposition and resistance to NATO. Uh, Currently, NATO is 
is normalized, it's unchallenged, it's legitimized among uh, the political establishment in Canada, and we are trying to counter that. We are very concerned about NATO expanding. We're very opposed to the NATO wars that Canada has been involved in in Afghanistan and in Libya. And, uh, and we are very opposed to the NATO provocations that Canada is involved in Eastern Europe. Canada is leading a NATO battle group in Latvia right now. And, and we, we know that NATO is really uh, militarizing the world. It is putting intense pressure on NATO members to increase military spending and to modernize their their uh, military forces, and, and we think that uh, NATO is no longer relevant and necessary. NATO should be dis disbanded, Canada should get out of NATO, and we should be working with the international community through the United Nations uh, to resolve any kind of global conflict and to deal peacefully and diplomatically uh, to deal with the challenges that we're all facing, mm. uh, particularly around climate change and poverty. And uh, and working uh, for disarmament. So, so we are, are with our monthly demonstration outside the NATO Association of Canada office in Toronto. We are trying to have a visible presence, and we're trying to grow a national resistance to NATO. So. Uh, we're starting with this effort. Okay. Now, well, other aspects of, of this month's uh, protest involved uh, the uh, you know, prevention of the militarization of space and, and also Canadian involvement in the ballistic missile defense. Uh, according to a 2017 Angus Reid survey, 44% of Canadians want their country to stay out of the U.S. ballistic missile defense system, while only 29% want Canada to join. What, what is compelling our political leadership? to embrace that policy? So the official policy is based on a 2005 decision by the Liberal government at the time to keep Canada out of U.S. ballistic missile defense. But there are many very, uh, uh, there are many think tanks like the McDonald laurier think tank, and there are uh, defense analysts across the country and some of the defense political establishment that, that are very upset with that decision. They do want Canada to join American ballistic missile defense, and, and they think that, it, that, that uh, this is something that, that Canada should do. But uh, we are very much opposed to Canada participating in U.S. ballistic missile defense because we think that it's part of a first-strike nuclear uh, policy. And, um, and that it's not really a defensive strategy. It really is an offensive strategy. And so we do not want Canada to join uh, BMD. We're very much opposed to it. Yeah. And uh, we're going to keep putting pressure on the political parties to maintain that decision. We know that the leader of the Conservative Party, Andrew Scheer, has made statements this year saying that if he forms the government that he is going to get Canada to join missile defense. And we just don't think that, um, that that's right. It, it, it will cause too much uh, destabilization in international affairs. We already have the United States withdrawing from the anti-ballistic missile treaty in 2002. Now we have the United States withdrawing from the intermediate nuclear forces treaty uh, earlier this summer. And, uh, 
the United States is contributing to the dismantling of the um, arms control regime internationally, and it's 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 really causing a lot of a concern and and conflict internationally. And and if we expand missile defense, that is just going to make things even worse. That's going to cause problems in our relationship with Russia and cause problems with our relationship with uh, China even more so. So we 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 need to. Um, keep Canada out of missile defense, and we need to work towards uh, a stronger disarmament and arms control regime internationally. Mm. Now, of course, we're also talking about the militarization of space. Uh, you know, we can have certain satellites being used to coordinate these, uh, uh, you know, the, this sort of military first strike uh, uh, agenda that you speak of. Now, I know that the Canadian Space Agency, nominally, their mandate is to promote the peaceful use and development of space, to advance the knowledge of space through science, and to ensure that space science and technology provide social and economic benefits for Canadians. What are some of the ways that you see the Canadian Space Agency being used to further militaristic agendas? Well, we know that most of the space technology that is being uh, used is dual-use technology. So it has a civilian-slash-commercial uh, use, but it also has a defense use. And actually, in Canada, we don't have very much information about the Canadian defense space policy. We haven't had a substantive defense space policy for the past 20 years. Uh, on the civilian and commercial side, we do have a space policy framework. Uh, um, it came out earlier this uh, spring under the Liberal government. The previous one was under the Conservative government in 2014. And these are very, these are very basic overviews of Canada's uh, commercial slash civilian defense policy. Uh, sorry, slash uh, uh, space policy. And so. Um, there's cooperation between the Canada uh, Space Agency and NASA on trying to get Canadian uh, satellites and the Canada arm being used in space, of course. Uh, but there is a lot of concern about the great about the growing militarization and weaponization of space. So many of the satellites that are that Canada has that Canada has and the United States has is used not only for for um, the for telecommunications and for Earth observation and for navigation, but it's also being used for defense purposes. So, guiding, for instance, uh, missiles and bombs that are being uh, dropped in the Middle East, um, they're all. It's also being used for, uh, for for navigation of armed drones. We know that Canada is planning on buying. Uh, $2 billion worth of armed drones, and this will rely on space technology. But we don't have a public policy about uh, ensuring that the, that the Canadian military is using us. We, we, don't, we don't have any assurances that, that um, space is being used for peace. We're very concerned that space is already uh, militarized with the use of, of satellites, like I said, for... Um, you, know, to, you know, to direct uh, the wars around the world. 
but we, um, we we don't have we need more laws and we need more we need more oversight of of what the Canadian military plans to do in space. Mm. There is uh, there is more pressure on the Canadian military to respond to space as a potential uh, domain of war and weapons because of the announcement that Trump made last year in announcing a new space force. So peace activists around the world are very concerned about the growing uh, militarization of space because space is a fragile global commons. Mm. Now, I, I understand that you yourself had at one point had been invited to uh, run for the uh, the New Democratic Party, uh, Canada's third party social democratic option, uh, but you know you resisted or you turned that down because you, you know, among other things, they they weren't immune to the allure of uh, of war profiteering. Uh, I guess that was back in two thousand eight in Halifax. Uh, and I think that speaks to systemic factors that are compelling Canada to embrace this uh, this uh, you know military or the mil- militaristic bent. Uh, I don't know. Could you speak to that a little bit more? The things that seem to override your know, partisan differences. Yes, I was asked in to run for the New Democratic Party in the federal election of two thousand in two thousand and eight. And I was the candidate, and I ran, and I came in second place to uh, the, the liberal incumbent. And I, I, a year later, I decided to quit the NDP and, and not run again as a candidate because I was very concerned that the NDP refused to take a position on Canada's growing militarism and refused to speak out against military spending. So in Canada, over the past 10 years, military spending has dramatically increased. We've gone from about $10 billion for defense spending in 2008 to now we're spending $32 billion in uh, last year in 2018. We spent 25 times more on the military than we do on the environment. And the military is one of the worst polluters. The military has the most contaminated sites in this country, and the military is exempted from fully and transparently reporting their emissions and from reducing their emissions from their vehicles and their operations. And the NDP is unwilling to uh, to deal with the issue of militarism and military spending. And so I decided to leave the party so that I can speak out fully and freely on this issue. But I should also mention that the, that the Green Party has also been very... Uh, poor on this issue as well. The Green Party has also been unwilling to speak honestly about Canadian foreign policy and defence policy and military spending. We actually have no opposition in the House of Commons to Canadian militarism and military spending. All of the members of Parliament currently are are too uh, are, are too timid. They're unwilling to to challenge the, the Canadian military industrial complex. They're unwilling to challenge. Canada's military relationship with the United States, and and it's and this is going this is a huge problem because military spending is preventing us from adequately investing in the climate crisis and the poverty crisis in this country. So I wanted to be outside of the political parties so that I can I can tackle this issue and start making the links between 
um, militarism and the other crises that we're facing. And I really believe that that peace and disarmament is central to abolishing uh, poverty in this country and uh, tackling the climate emergency. Hmm. Uh, I wanted to to put uh, one more question to you, if I could, uh, because just you know, there there are people who will argue, as you pointed out. I mean, there there's still a lot. NATO, Canada's involvement of NATO has been very much normalized, right? So. Uh, you know, there, there's the argument that uh, it's better to have Canadian leadership at the table within these initiatives, whether it's NATO or BMD or what have you, you know, and, and having a role in the decision making versus letting the U.S. and other countries make those decisions affecting us without our input. Well, what would you say to that? The truth of it is that NATO is very much dictated and dominated by the United States. So... The United States will do what it's what it wants through NATO, and the other NATO members are pressured to to accept what the United States wants. So the United States wants all of the NATO members to increase military spending and to modernize their defense forces to be interoperable with the United States, and that's what the NATO members are doing. Um, actually, Canada loses its sovereignty. It loses its self-determination by me, by being a NATO member. We are we are too much under the dictates of the United States, and it, we would we would be served better by working cooperatively and collaboratively and peacefully through the United Nations to deal with any of the global challenges that we're facing. Um, we we have to remember that NATO is an exclusive, uh, Western-dominated institution really it's seen by the developing world as a neo-colonial uh, project and um, that's continuing you know to to militarize uh, the world and NATO is no longer needed right the the Warsaw Pact dissolved in 1991 we don't have the the um, the USSR any longer we don't we don't have um, uh, Russia and NATO uh, Russia and China aggression. We we actually uh, uh, we, it is NATO that is provoking uh, Russia and China, and it, it, the whole planet would be better off if NATO no longer existed. NATO is undermining the United Nations, and NATO is preventing us from uh, dealing with dealing cooperatively with the real challenges that we're facing, and and especially uh, NATO is preventing us from uh, disarming. And that's something that we we absolutely need to do. So we, Canada doesn't need to be at the NATO table. Canada needs to uh, step away. Canada needs to work to uh, dis disband and dismantle NATO. Uh, it's no longer relevant. It's Like I said, it's an exclusive military, military alliance that relies on a nuclear weapons arsenal. It's causing instability and insecurity around the world. And it's no longer relevant. We, we, we need to, we need to end NATO. No to NATO. Yes to peace. And any, any last thoughts for uh, listeners who wish to support your campaign, particularly in the context of the current federal election? Canadians should be asking their uh, candidates in this, in this current election, where they stand on peace and disarmament. And, and where they stand on Canadian foreign policy and defense policy, 
and also where they stand on Canadian military spending. They need to start asking some really difficult questions. And then once this uh, election is over and we have a new federal government, Canadians need to start working together to get Canada out of NATO and to work towards the dismantling of NATO. On December 3rd and December 4th, there's going to be a big NATO leaders' summit in London, England. There's going to be protests across Canada uh, against NATO. Uh, we're going to be in solidarity with the huge peace uh, march and peace conference that's happening at the same time of the NATO summit in London. We're, there's going to be solidarity actions around the world. Many people around the world are calling for an end to NATO. So I'm hoping that Canadians will, will join us on the streets in major cities across the country and say Canada out of NATO. The other thing that we're hoping is that we're going to work with uh, members of parliament who are part of the Canada-NATO Parliamentary Association, and we're going to start start telling them that we that this association should, should not exist we don't support Canada's participation. Uh, Canada's um, we, we don't support Canada's involvement in NATO any longer. We don't think that there should be a parliamentary association uh, um, for NATO, and um, and and we think that that the priority of the Canadian government should be on peace, disarmament, and achieving the Sustainable Development Goals, um, and, and not uh, working with NATO on new on new wars and and buying new weapons. That was Tamara Lawrence, a Toronto-based organizer with the Canadian Voice of Women for Peace in Toronto. The group's website is www.vowpeace.org. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. To look at efforts to militarize space in the broader context, we turn now to the following interview by Global Research NewsHour associate Paul Graham with Bruce Gagnon of the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. This interview was recorded in September. Planet Earth is heating up, and so is the risk of nuclear war. Even though an overwhelming majority of the members of the United Nations voted in support of a treaty to ban nuclear weapons two years ago, the major powers remain armed to the teeth, with no sign that they will disarm anytime soon. Ever since former U.S. President Ronald Reagan announced plans for weaponizing space in the 1980s, the U.S. and its NATO allies have put in place an expensive, elaborate, and dangerous war machine that encircles the Earth and makes full use of the latest information technology on Earth and in space. In 2000, the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space organized an international day of protest to stop the militarization of space. In 2002, the Global Network expanded it to an entire week of activities called Keep Space for Peace Week, which involves events in over a dozen countries. This year, Keep Space for Peace Week is October 5th to 12th. To learn more, I spoke with Bruce Gagnon, who is coordinator of the Global Network. Well, the organization was created in 1992. At that time, there were only two organizations uh, working full-time in the United States on space issues. Uh, that was the Florida Coalition for Peace and Justice that I coordinated. 
and the other was a group from Colorado Springs, Colorado, Citizens for Peace and Space, and uh, because the Air Force Space Command is headquartered there. So we put our heads together and said, this thing is growing rapidly into the real Star Wars, and we've been at it ever since. We have about 150 affiliated local groups and national organizations around the world. And what we learned was, as we uh, began traveling, that around the world, in order to communicate with U.S. military satellites, the Pentagon has established what are called downlink stations, ground-based receiving stations that talk to the satellites as they orbit the Earth. They send their signal directly below where they are at the time. And then that downlink station bounces the signal to other satellites, all in real time, split-second time, getting it back to headquarters in the United States. So our membership is largely groups and people that live in these communities around the world that have these U.S. Star Wars bases, and they say, we don't want our country to be used for this space weapons program. Is your focus... Um exclusively on weapons in space, or are there other elements uh, as well involved with, uh, with it? Well, we're very concerned about nuclear power, the use of nuclear power in space. Uh, we've been reading for many years Air Force documents uh, that say that they would need nuclear reactors to power weapons in space, things like space-based lasers, and also, the industry views space as a new market. Uh, today, that little rover driving around Mars is powered with plutonium generator. And the industry envisions nuclear-powered mining colonies on the moon and Mars and various asteroids uh, where they would actually have mining operations. And then they also say in order to get to Mars in a shorter time, it takes about a year to get there, and astronauts' bodies, because of space radiation, would turn to jello. So they say we need to be able to get to Mars in half the time, which would require nuclear rockets, rockets with nuclear reactors for engines. So a whole host of nuclear projects are envisioned. But we're very concerned about that because not just that they might blow up on launch, which is a possibility, of course, but also the fabrication process is very dangerous at the Department of Energy laboratories around the country. Just one illustration, in 1997 when NASA launched the Cassini mission to deep space carrying 72 pounds of plutonium on board, uh, just before the launch it was reported by the, a newspaper in New Mexico that at Los Alamos Labs, a Department of Energy laboratory, where they were fabricating the generators for that Cassini mission, they had 244 cases of worker contamination as they were processing the plutonium. Uh, so it's a problem even before they launch. So how advanced is the militarization of space? Well, there's two different things. One is the militarization, which is highly advanced today. Everything the Pentagon does is coordinated and directed by U.S. military satellites. We call that the militarization of space. 
2003, when George W. Bush launched the shock and awe attack of Iraq, in the initial attack, 70% of the weapons that were used were directed to their targets by military space technology. So that's what we call the militarization of space. Satellites have essentially become triggers for warfare. Everything the Pentagon does, troops on the ground, boats in the ocean, airplanes, everything is coordinated by space technology today. The other thing is the weaponization of space, actual weapons in space. That, at this point, as far as we know, has not yet happened permanently, where things are permanently stationed. They have both uh, the United States, Russia, and China have all tested anti-satellite weapons where they fire something into space, knock out a satellite. That, that has happened. But in terms of something permanently stationed in space, it has not yet happened. But I think they're creeping up on it very quickly. I know the U.S. is testing various technologies it would give them actual uh, pre-positioned uh, weapons in space. You mentioned uh, China and Russia as well. Are they, uh, are they uh, as advanced as the United States in, in their use of uh, this te technology? No, they're not. And uh, Russia was uh, really set back at the time the collapse of the former Soviet Union, the collapse of their economy in the early 90s, uh, their space program, which was pretty sophisticated at that time, uh, really took a dive just because of lack of funds. Um, so they're playing catch up. Russia, uh, China is starting from way back. The United States has a big lead on everybody else. But those two countries are closing because they're saying we can't allow you to be the master of space at the Air Force Space Command headquarters in Colorado Springs above the doorway. They have their logo that reads master of space. And in planning documents like vision for 2020 from the Space Command, they say that the US will control space, dominate space, deny other countries access to space, that the US must be the master of space. So Russia and China obviously are saying, we can't allow you to do that because whoever controls space controls the earth below, and they also control the, the highway, the pathway on and off the planet Earth. There's a congressional planning document that comes out of the late 80s called Military Space Forces the Next 50 Years, and in there they say the U.S. must control the pathway on and off the planet Earth. They say with, this is a quote, with armed forces laying in wait at that location, we would be able to hijack rival shipments upon return. So uh, I believe that this proposal to create a quote-unquote space force, a permanent separate military function, uh, it, two of its roles then would be control of the planet Earth on behalf of corporate interests and also control of the pathway on and off the planet Earth in order to regulate who can go out and mine the sky for precious resources and minerals in the years ahead. How much does all of this cost? How, how do the American people afford uh, to pay for this kind of uh, thing? Well, so far the figures are that they've spent a couple hundred billion dollars, and that's probably a very conservative figure over the years in developing where we are today. One of the reasons I say that it's a conservative figure is because the 
the Pentagon has a thing called the black budget, the secret budget, that even Congress is not allowed to know how it's spent or even how much it is. Estimates are that it's up to about $100 billion a year. Uh, most of that money goes in for this high-tech space weapons development program uh, research and development. Uh, so I think the figure is is well beyond a couple hundred billion dollars, probably into a trillion dollars, but we just don't know for sure. One other thing I want to say about Russia and China is that for years they've been going to the United Nations General Assembly and introducing a resolution calling for a global ban, a treaty, a new treaty to ban all weapons in space. They call it PAROS, Prevention of an Arms Race in Outer Space. Uh, there is an Outer Space Treaty of 1967 which bans weapons of mass destruction in space, but the Pentagon has long been saying that things they want to put in space, the kind of weapon systems they want to deploy, would be weapons of selective destruction, not weapons of mass destruction. So they would fall outside that existing treaty. And so for more than 25 years, annually, Russia and China introduced this treaty, PAROS, Prevention of an Arms Race in Outer Space, and uh, everybody votes in favor of it except the United States and Israel. And then it goes to the Conference on Disarmament in Geneva at the UN for negotiation, and the U.S. and Israel block it. U.S. official position is, hey, there's no problem. There are no weapons in space. In the end, the question is, how would it be paid for? Uh, some years ago, in one of the industry publications, aerospace industry publication called Space News, they ran an editorial saying, look, we've got to be responsible corporate citizens and come up with a dedicated funding source in order to pay for all this space stuff we want. And we have. And we're now sending our lobbyists to Washington to secure that funding source. And they called it the entitlement programs that in America officially are Social Security, the retirement program, Medicare, the elderly health care program, Medicaid, the poor people's health care program, and the social safety net, with tattered welfare program that's barely hanging on. So these are the programs that the aerospace industry has identified for defunding in order to pay for a new arms race. What about uh, militaries from uh, from uh, other uh, members of NATO? Um, uh, I guess I'm most specifically interested in Canada, but um, any any research that you've done about Canada or or other NATO members uh, regarding uh, weapons uh, militarization of space or cooperation, I suppose, with the with the American military in using space. Well, the aerospace industry has been saying for many many years that Star Wars, you know, a new arms race in space, would be the largest industrial program in the history of the of the world. And I call it pyramids to the heavens. The aerospace industry are the new pharaohs of our time and we the taxpayers would be the slaves to build it. So even after they go after our social program funding in the United States, it's still not enough money. 
even with all the money they currently get at the Pentagon, Pentagon spends a trillion dollars a year, their their budget, you add up all the various pots of gold, um, it's still not enough money. And so in that vision for 2020 that came out in the 90s, that uh, Space Command planning document, they said we've got to go to the Allies and get them to help pay for this. So that's been a real effort in recent years. You might often hear the word interoperability. Everything that NATO does has to be interoperable with what the United States does. And what that means is you have to buy our technology from Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Raytheon, General Dynamics, et cetera, et cetera, because it has to fit into our existing format. It has to be interoperable with the U.S. system. But the U.S. would still control and does still control the tip of the spear. So just to illustrate today, Canada is heavily involved in the United States Missile Warning and Space Surveillance Program. Uh, Canada uh, deploys military personnel into what's called a U.S. Joint Force Component uh, Command, and they send Canadian troops to Vandenberg Air Force Base in California, Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado, Beale Air Force Base in California, Buckley Air Force Base in Colorado, Cape Cod Air Force Base in Massachusetts, Cavalier Air Force Base in North Dakota, Clear Air Force Base in Alaska, Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado, Thule Air Force Base in Greenland. And at these bases, at these downlink stations that I earlier talked about, the U.S. and Canada are basically uh, looking at everything that Russia and China do every missile that they launch, everything that they do. Uh, and they use these downlink stations to coordinate uh, this growing program called missile defense. And I should explain what that means because it's really not about defense whatsoever. Think of the old Roman days with swords and shields. The sword is the first strike attack. The shield is the defense. And so today... The U.S. has created this program, and they annually wargame it, computer wargame it at uh, Space Command, where the U.S. launches a first strike attack on Russia and China. They try to take out all of their, <coughs> excuse me, uh, nuclear forces, whether they're under the ground, whether they're mo mobile, driving around in various parts of Russia, or even if they're in the oceans in submarines. The U.S. tries to take out as many of these as possible. But inevitably, Russia or China fires some remaining retaliatory capability. It is then that these so-called missile defense systems are used, the shield, to pick off any remaining retaliatory capability, giving the U.S. a quote-unquote successful first strike attack. And so all around the world today, the U.S. is deploying ground-based and sea-based missile defense systems. In fact, they're now, they've now even been established in Romania and Poland, so close to the Russian border. And so these, <clears throat> excuse me, bases that are all over the world, these downlink stations that are surveilling in real time everything that Russia does would also help with the targeting of the missile defense system. And particularly the five eyes, the uh, Five Eyes uh, is an information sharing program that Canada, the United States, New Zealand, 
uh, the UK and Australia all participate in. They're the bedrock of this program that would allow the United States to be able to launch a first strike attack and then supposedly use missile defense to pick off any retaliatory strikes. This is very provocative, it's very dangerous, and in recent years, Russia and China have both been saying that as much as we'd like to continue to disarm, to get rid of our nuclear weapons, we can't afford to do it as long as you're deploying missile defense systems on our borders, just off our shores, on Navy destroyers. And uh, because uh, it, uh, your capability puts in jeopardy our retaliatory capability. Both Russia and China have renounced first use of nuclear weapons. The United States refuses to do that. Uh, Russia and China have always said that their nuclear forces are defensive, they're retaliatory only. But you introduce missile defense, that gives the U.S. an advantage. Missile defense used to be illegal under the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty between the U.S. and Russia. But when George W. Bush became president, he withdrew the U.S. from the ABM Treaty. We now see Trump withdrawing from the Iran Nuclear Treaty, from the Intermediate Nuclear Forces, the INF Treaty with Russia. U.S. is withdrawing from treaties left and right in order to have what they call full-spectrum dominance and the ability to launch and survive a first-strike attack. And so Canada, along with the other Five Eyes country, again, those are U.S., Canada, New Zealand, U.K., and Australia, are key instruments in helping develop this infrastructure to monitor and launch a first-strike attack. I'm old enough to remember uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis and, uh, and, and how uh, upset uh, the American government was that uh, there were Soviet missiles in Cuba. I can only imagine how the Russians must feel, or for that matter, the Chinese, as they see these various encroachments on their borders. What does the future hold for, uh, for this uh, militarization of space, the weaponization? You've painted a frightening picture of, of the current state of affairs. What's the trajectory? Where are they going? What's next? Well, right now, it's full bore, uh, moving towards a new arms race in space. Uh, the U.S. is pushing it. The way I see it, the United States sees that its military and economic empire is collapsing. The U.S. has eight, more than 800 bases around the world. Russia, outside of its own territory, might have five at the most. China might have one or two in the South China Sea now on some little rocky atolls that they've turned into bases. But outside of that, the U.S. is the dominant global empire, but it's collapsing. One thing I could say about Trump, he's done more to accelerate the collapse than any other president in the history of our country. Also, our economy is collapsing because we poured so much of our national resources into militarism. We're falling apart. Our infrastructure is collapsing. The, the human infrastructure of America is collapsing. People are depressed. They're increasingly uh, unhealthy. Uh, our food, our water, all everything is, is uh, deteriorating. So this empire is collapsing. And the U.S. recognizes that and is saying, we've got to hang on no matter what. And so we're rolling the dice like a riverboat gambler. The U.S. Uh, Pentagon is, 
saying that we're going to try to hang on and we're going to use space technology as our wild card here to uh, maintain dominance of the world. And I think it's a fool's errand and it's a dangerous fool's errand. It could lead to uh, the final solution, if you will, to kind of quote a Nazi phrase. Uh, but uh, that's why uh, Interviews like yours uh, are very helpful. Most people don't pay any attention to space. They don't know anything about it. They, they don't understand the depth of it. They don't understand how space technology drives everything the Pentagon does today. Uh, so our only hope is to get that word out. That's why we create Keep Space for Peace Week every year since 2001. That's a very good segue for you to tell us more about what's going on with, with that week. Well, the the importance of it is that we're trying to create a greater understanding, a, a international constituency about how space drives this new arms race. And so we ask people around the world to hold local protests and events every October. This year it's October 5th through the 12th uh, in order to bring this issue to more people. And uh, so uh, we put out that word. If you go to our website, which is spaceforpeace.org, spaceforpeace.org, you can see the listing of events that are scheduled now. More will be added before October 5th comes. But uh, it's always an uh, important time for us to really reach out and educate people, uh, urge them to go to our website, uh, to look at our space video section. There's been some wonderful videos made about these issues that would help people understand it. Are there uh, other things that you'd like to uh, talk about today, Bruce, that we haven't covered? Well, I think, uh, first of all, I do want to say that, uh, you know, Trump's new pr proposal to build a separate space force, a separate entity of the military, like the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, to have a space force. That looks like it's going to pass through Congress. The Democrats that control the House of Representatives in Washington, their only disagreement is the name. They want to call it the Space Corps rather than the Space Force. That shows you what our politics are in this country anymore. But at the same time, I do want to say that Canada has been asked, authorities in Canada have been asked what they think about this idea of the Space Force. And there's a couple quotes that I would like to share uh, from Canadians. Uh, Matthew Overton, Executive Director of the Conference on Defense Associations, said, thinking about space at a, as a separate entity in itself that deserves attention and expertise, I think it's a good idea. He says uh, uh, that uh, maintain space domination domain. No, sorry, maintain space domain awareness and develop and deliver and assure space-based capabilities is important. So that's one. Uh, another is from uh, Wayne Ellis, who served in the Canadian military for 20 years. Uh, also believes that Space Force is a good idea. Um, a, a lot of these Canadian military personnel, he said, are actually space positions at various bases, which I talked about earlier. 
And at some point, our posted personnel are going to be interacting with this U.S. Space Force as it gets set up. So clearly, Canada, at least from these people within the industry, within the space military industry, I uh, think it's a good idea. They're eager for Can Canada to continue its involvement. So in the end, what's the solution? What's the way out of this morass that we face? I believe it's conversion of the military industrial complex. We do have a big problem today, and it's called climate change. And if we don't deal with it very quickly in the next 10 or 11 years, make substantial change in our fossil fuel industrial societies, we're really fixed. We're, we're, in the, we're in the swim, so to speak. And the future generations have little hope. So that means we need a quick conversion of the military industrial complex. In my community, we have a shipyard, naval shipyard called Bath Iron Works, where they build Navy destroyers outfitted with these so-called missile defense systems that are being parked off the shores of Russia and China today. We've been having a campaign here for some years calling for the conversion of this shipyard to build offshore wind turbines. The Gulf of Maine has more wind capacity than any other place in the continental United States. We say that Bath Ironworks could be building commuter rail systems, replacing cars in our state and beyond. And we could be building tidal power systems. And studies at University of Massachusetts, at Amherst, and also Brown University in Rhode Island say that if we did that, we'd get more jobs because military spending is capital intensive, meaning it eats up a lot of money, doesn't create so many jobs, and every other kind of production, especially a sustainable technology production, would create a lot more jobs, sometimes even double the number of jobs. So this is what we need to be calling for. All of our movements, uniting, labor, environmental, peace, calling for the conversion of the global military industrial complex. Just simply based on estimates, I've seen that the, the largest single uh, uh, contributor to uh, uh, greenhouse gases uh, in the world, in fact, is the US military. It's, that kind of conversion makes an awful lot of sense. Exactly. That's exa exactly right. Well, I think we're uh, rapidly running out of time. Uh, I'd like to thank you, Anne Bruce, for, for this. It's, it's been most uh, informative, and we'll do what we can to uh, get the word out. Thank you, Paul, very much for having me on. That was Bruce Gagnon, Secretary Coordinator of the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space, speaking to Paul Graham last month. More information on Keep Space for Peace Week can be found on the website spaceforpeace.org. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our program every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download our program from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. Many thanks to Paul Graham for his contribution this week. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Thanks for listening. Please join us again next week.